peer out these hallways. So uh, if you've been with us for any part of the past full year, you have been in the Gospel of John with us. So we are into week 55. You know, our kind of commitment around here is to really teach and work through God's Word. Like we want to know it and we want to love it and we want it to do more than just influence our lives. We want it to be the very air that we breathe. And so scripture is something that we take, or our, our, the authority of scripture is something we take really highly and we love to teach and unpack these places and just kind of work through it. And, and we started the gospel of John over a year ago. We're 55 weeks in and we have made it all the way into the end of the life of Jesus. He is just literally hours away from being betrayed. Judas Iscariot has already left the room, right? They were in the upper room. He has left, and he has made his way to the high priests and the Pharisees, where they are, in a matter of hours, going to come and arrest Jesus. So we've gone through the Gospel of John. We've made it all the way into this moment. Now, as I tell you each week, John's Gospel is inherently different than all the other Gospels. John is not interested in teaching us sort of a history of the life of Christ. He wants to show us that Jesus is, in fact, the Incarnation. John makes a theological argument for the deity of Christ. He wants us to see Jesus as God's Son. And so everything in his gospel is pointing to the fact that Jesus is not some kind of wandering rabbi, but that he is God in the flesh who has stepped into this world to take on the sin of humanity and die and then be raised so that we all might have life. That is John's entire goal. So as we look at his text, we look at it through that lens. And John's gospel is different than the ends of all the other gospels, because the ends of the other gospels are built on the events, right? The Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry, the Last Supper, the betrayal, the crucifixion, the resurrection. John has all those events, but he tells the, the depth of story and teaching in between each of these moments. And so we're in a section of John's gospel, chapter 14 through 17, which is called the Farewell Discourse. It's the, the second longest recorded discourse of Christ, sort of uninterrupted, sort of uninterrupted. A couple of the disciples chime in here and there, but uninterrupted teaching section outside of the Sermon on the Mount that we see in any of the Gospels. None of the other Gospels record it in its, its entirety. John records it, and it's every moment of it. And so we have at the end of the, the Last Supper where Jesus tells you know, Judas to go ahead and do what you're going to do, and Judas leaves the room, that he spends the next few hours with the disciples basically teaching them and talking incredibly plainly about what's going to happen in the near future. And it's a really powerful section of text. Chapter 17 is going to pray for the disciples and for the world. And then this mob of angry men are going to show up with torches and swords and they're going to arrest Jesus. And so for the next weeks, we are in that teaching section that's leading up to Jesus' betrayal. And I say all that because it's really important when we read and understand scripture to know where we are in terms of its overall context, because the context makes a ton of difference. And so that is where we are. And here's what's happened, right? So Jesus has just told the disciples all very plainly that he is leaving. Now he's said that to them before, but now he's speaking very plainly and he tells them, I am leaving and the place that I am going, you cannot come. And he looks at them all after he's washed their feet and after they've shared the Passover meal together and after he's given this sort of last supper where he says, you know, do this and remember it to me. Like we're going to celebrate today and we celebrate communion. After all that, he tells them he's leaving and he's going to a place where they can't come. And he says, I give you a new command, right? Love one another as I have loved you. And he, we went through all that about three or four weeks ago. But Peter gets hung on this thing that Jesus says when he says, I'm going somewhere and you can't come. And he says, wait, wait, Jesus, you, you can't be going anywhere that we 
can't go. Like, we've been with you for three years. We've walked everywhere you've walked. We've, we've been threatened with death alongside you. We've seen you do incredible things. We've given up all of our careers and lives to follow you. So where are you going that we can't go? And Jesus goes to comfort Peter by saying, Peter, I'm going to a place that you cannot go. I'm returning to the Father, but I will come back. But Peter's still hung up on it, and he basically thinks Jesus is still talking about physical location. He says, wherever you go, I will go. I will die for you, right? And Jesus looks at Peter, and he sort of unveils the entire reason why Jesus is returning to the Father, why he must die to conquer death. And he says, will you really die for me, Peter? Before the rooster crows this morning, you will disown me, disown me three times, right? We get this sense that our sin and our gravity is so large, and so what Jesus is going to do is, is he is going to conquer that and give life to that through his death and resurrection. But we have the hindsight of history behind us, but the disciples are really caught up in the, the sort of temporary, right? And so Thomas chimes up, and he basically says, wait, wait, I have a bunch of questions too, because we don't know how to get where you're going. Because Jesus had just told them, you know the way that I'm going. He said, we don't know how to get there. You're not even telling us where you're going. And then last week we looked at Jesus' incredibly powerful comment that we all sort of know in 14.6 where he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And of course, they're hung so much on this physical location that they're missing all of the things that Jesus is saying. And so, so Thomas pipes up and he says, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way. And we unpacked that last week. And we talked about the idea of what was behind Thomas's question, a question that he didn't even really know he was asking, which is, what is the way out of this world? Or what is the way to eternal life? And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And last week we talked about the reality of Jesus being the only way, not only to abundant life here on earth, but eternal life in heaven. And that religious pluralism is a lie. All roads do not lead to the same place in terms of religious culture. And so we talked about that a lot. So we've, we've made it there. And this morning what we're going to see is we're going to see Philip now jump in the conversation because he is equally as confused as the other disciples. And Jesus is going to speak plainly to the oneness of the Father and the Son, which actually has a ton of implications uh, for you and I. So all that to get us to John 14, 8. So let's take a moment, let's pray, let's ask God to teach our hearts, and then we're going to work through this text together. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are God, that you are bigger than everything that we know or understand. You are beyond our comprehension at times, and you are the revealer of truth. So Lord, we know that we will not open your word and all of a sudden just know things. We won't open your word and discover for ourselves. You are the revealer of all truth, and so Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning. Father, we pray that you would instruct our hearts, that you would share with us something that each of us need to hear, need to know, need to encounter, that you would reveal yourself to us. Take a moment in your own heart. We do this each week. Just ask the Lord to teach you. Ask that it would be his words on your heart, and that he would teach your heart this morning whatever it is that he wants you to understand and see, that he would reveal that to you. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know them. Maybe you've never seen them before, or maybe they're your, your husband or your wife or your children. Just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Each week we, we want to remind ourselves that this thing that unfolds on Sunday is not about you. It's not about me. 
but we want to be people that want to see God move in the lives of the people around us. And so pray for somebody around you. Pray that God would teach their heart this morning. Lord, we ask you to teach our hearts through your word, Lord, that we would um, be receptive this morning to the word of God. Lord, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take it lightly, and so we ask you to speak to our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' resurrected and holy name. Amen. So Jesus has been addressing the questions of the disciples as they come up. Peter's question about, hey, I will die with you, and then Thomas chimes up and says, you know, we don't really know where you're going, and Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And then Philip jumps in, because of the last sentence that we looked at last week in verse 7, Jesus says, if you really knew me, you would know the Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. So Jesus says to the disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you know me, you know the Father. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has equated himself with God the Father. We've talked about that quite a bit, especially in chapter 10, which we'll revisit some this morning as well. So Thomas gets hung on that verse, or get hung on that idea that Jesus says that, that if you basically have encountered the Father, you've encountered the Son. And this is what Thomas says in verse, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, this is what Philip says in verse 8. Philip gets hung on that verse. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. So Jesus, at the end of verse 7, says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, and Philip chimes in, right, and he says, now, listen, Jesus, if you just show us the Father, then that will be enough. He's basically saying this. We've seen you do the incredible things. You've walked on water. You've cast out demons. You've, you've fed 5,000. You've healed the blind guy. You called me, myself, Philip, from underneath the fig tree. Before I even knew you, you've done all these incredible things. And I'm just asking for one more piece of evidence that you are who you say you are. Just show us the Father, right? That'll be enough. That'll be enough, I promise. And if you ever see Jesus in Scripture almost sort of exasperated without the of course sinfulness attached to it it's got to be right here so so thomas jesus remember is hours away from his betrayal and death he knows what is coming and he's speaking incredibly plainly to these men that have walked alongside him for three years and thomas says just one more thing all of this aside like just show us the father and jesus says to him don't you know me philip even after I've been among you such a long time. So you get the sense that Jesus is like, Philip, I mean, really? After everything 
that we have walked through, that I've said to you, that you've seen me do, that I've said plainly about the oneness of the Father and the Son. This is not Jesus' first time. All through chapter 10, he's telling them directly with the Pharisees standing under Solomon's colonnade in the temple that he and the Father are connected as one. And he says, even after all that, don't you know me, Philip? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and the words that I say are not my own, but that the Father's living in me and he's doing his work through me? Believe me, believe me when I say that I'm in the Father, right? Or at least, listen, if you can't get behind my words, right, at least believe on the evidence that you've seen themselves. So he's saying, listen, even if you don't want to believe my words, which is ridiculous because I've been with you, but even if you won't, those things that I do and have done are done in the power and the wonder of Almighty God. Every miracle that you've seen me perform, the 5,000 people that were fed, plus women and children, the baskets of bread left over, the walking on the water, the healing of the countless sick, all the miracles that you've seen, believe on those. Are those not attached to my words to show that it's a Father who sent me? Right? And then he does something. He stops there and he shifts directions completely. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the truth, right? Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. And you will do even greater things. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Son may bring glory to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Which is a really incredible statement, which we're going to unpack in a moment. Jesus says all of those things. Don't you know me? Haven't you seen me? I've told you that if you see me, you've seen the Father. You've heard the authority in which I speak. The ways that I have calmed storms in my very voice. And if that's not enough, my words, my authority, you've seen the evidence of the miracles. Tie the two things together and believe that I am who I say I am. Right? It's where Jesus leaves that. And he says, now listen, even more so, right? I am leaving. I'm leaving. And if you believe in me, you will do the things that I've been doing, and you will even do greater things. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do. So he takes these two incredible pieces and statements, and he kind of unites them under this idea that Jesus is in fact God. And there's two main statements that Jesus is really making in this text. And that first one is really the idea that Jesus is, in fact, God. That the Father and the Son are, in fact, one. And the second is that Jesus is leaving. He's not making any kind of arguments about that. He's told them incredibly plainly that he will no longer be with them, but he is leaving them empowered. And we're going to be looking at that at the end of this week and next week as well. But those two statements are really important, that the Father and the Son are in fact one. Now, when I was in seminary, I ran into an argument quite often that is actually gaining a ton of popularity again today. And that argument about the idea of Jesus is this, that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Now, when we talk about who Jesus is, there's a lot of different thoughts. He was a wandering prophet. He was this great teacher. He was, in fact, the Son of God. But one of the most widely held views of Jesus was that Jesus is this great, incredible moral teacher, and I don't have to deal with the religious crazy guy because he actually never claimed to be God himself. He never said, I am God. And there's all kinds of stuff written out there about people that have taken up that position that says, I can get behind Jesus as teacher, Because I don't have to deal with a lunacy 
that Jesus ever really claimed to be God. That was actually Christianity that developed those thoughts to give Jesus more power. But if you really look at Jesus' words, Jesus never says, I am God. Which, of course, is amazing, right? Because if you really look at text and you look at what's going on, the fact that Jesus never pieces the three words together, I am God, doesn't really mean anything. Because Jesus clearly and explicitly states, right, that he and the Father are, in fact, one. Even in this verse, he says that the Father's in me and I'm in the Father. In John 10.30, which all the disciples would have remembered well, chapter 10, he's standing in the temple under Solomon's colonnade and he's teaching, right? He's teaching them. And, and essentially they say, they pick up stones to throw him, and Jesus says, throw at him. And Jesus says, which of the miracles that I've done are you stoning me for? And the Pharisees say, we're not stoning you for any of those miracles. We're stoning you because you are a mere man claiming to be God. Even the people around Jesus believed that he was claiming to be God. So our attempt to make an argument that Jesus is claiming to be God, to make his teaching more palatable, is really impressive to me. Because the reason we do that, or people do that, is because if I can't make that leap, I've got to deal with one of three really powerful things. One, I've got to deal with Jesus claimed to be God and he actually was right. So I have to deal with that truth. If I want to believe Jesus is some kind of moral teacher, then I've got to deal with the idea that he claims to be one. I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. And the Pharisees were going to kill him because Jesus made that claim. It was the blasphemy of claiming to be God that led Jesus to the cross. These statements that we see here in John 14, I and the Father are one. Do you not know that he is in me and I am in the Father? That if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To lay eyes on Jesus, right, is to lay eyes on God. But if I don't want to have to deal with that, I need to figure out a way to separate those comments that Jesus is making so that I can hang on what I believe to be the moral teachings of Jesus. So I've got to do something with Jesus claiming to be God. Either he is correct Two, or he's just some kind of crazy lying con man, right? Like he was just a guy traveling around and it pretty much duped everybody into believing, right, that he was Jesus, like David Koresh back in Waco in the 90s, right? That he had duped the world into believing that. Or the third one, of course, is that he's just an absolute lunatic. Anybody that wanders around and claims to be God, right, that I am God in the flesh, you have to deal with it on one of those categories. Well, there's been a widespread belief, right, amongst all kinds of categories of people that Jesus never claimed to be God. And if he didn't claim to be God, then I don't have to deal with those three things. But the truth is, Jesus does claim to be God, and he claims to be God explicitly. In fact, in John 10, 30, he says, I am the Father, are one. Here he says, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He even says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So to get to that place, you have to deny a whole lot of things that are actually in Scripture. So Jesus is, in fact, claiming to be God. And what we learn in this text is that Jesus and the Father are, in fact, one, which is the the baseline for what will be a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, right? Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, equal persons, equal God. But there's a couple things in that idea that are wrapped up about Jesus and the Father being one. The first, he kind of puts them in there. The first is this, is that the words... Jesus, of Jesus are actually the words of God. So Jesus' words are actually the words of God. Now this is really important for a whole multitude of reasons, mainly because he's not just some half-cocked rabbi, rabbi wandering around the countryside saying a bunch of things, but his words carry power and they carry authority, right? So he actually tells them in verse 10, he says, he says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say are not my own. 
but it's the Father living in me. So we know that the words that Jesus says, or so he claims, the words that he says are actually the words of the Father who is dwelling in him, right? The Father and the Son are one, and the words of Jesus are the words of God. This means that the things that fall from Jesus' lips carry the very same authority and power that spoke the entire universe into creation. So we believe that Father God created the universe, that he spoke light into darkness, right? That God of the universe has that authority in his voice. And if Jesus' words are the words of God and the words of Jesus carry the same authority as the words of God, because they are the same. Now that's really important for us to understand because it means that we don't get to pick and choose what we like about what Jesus says. What Jesus says, he speaks with God's authority because his words are the very words of God which makes things really challenging, right? Because, of course, there are a lot of things that Jesus says that we love, and there's a lot of things that Jesus says that we really struggle with that are hard to do. The first shall be last, right? All of these things about denying ourselves and obediently serving the Father, death to self, all these pictures of Christ, things that Jesus says, right, are now called to be part of who we are because they are the very words of God. The second thing that we really see in this idea that Jesus and the Father are in fact one, is that if the words of Jesus are the words of God, then the actions of Jesus are the actual actions of God. Listen to the back part of verse 10, right? The words I say are not my own, rather it is a Father living in me who is doing his work. So that means that it's the actions of Jesus are actually the actions of God the Father. Now this is really important also because we like to park Jesus as this sort of great, wonderful prophet, and we can kind of leave him in that category. means in things that he says, maybe he's just a mouthpiece for God. And so if the words of Jesus are the words of God, and we don't have to tie Jesus' actions to God, then we can leave Jesus as a prophet, which is where a lot of world religions have left Jesus. They believe that he was a great spokesman for God, that he had a lot of incredible things to say, and so therefore he was a prophet or something a little greater than that, and we can put him on the shelf and we can leave him there. And we don't have to deal with the actions of Christ in terms of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But if the actions of Jesus are actually actions of God, if they are the same, the same way that his words are the words of God, that we have to deal with the things that Jesus did. And not just the sort of super things at the end of his life, like the death and resurrection. But we have to deal with the way that Jesus lived. Because if Jesus would touch the people that the entire religious world won't touch, if Jesus will walk to the heartbeat of Samaria, if Jesus will spend time with the broken and the outcast and the destitute and the marginalized, then that means that God is spending time with those people and doing those things, which takes all of the religious elite and religious community and he dumps it on its head because they had built a life out of making sure that they were separated from the world. And if God, all of a sudden, right, was now marching to the heartbeat of Samaria, was touching lepers, was sitting with prostitutes, right, all of those things, then all of a sudden, every one of our religious actions that were built on our own moral standing to try and build ourselves up to feel a little better than the rest of culture is dead. And the religious world hates that. Because Jesus turns religiosity and religion on its end, right? And if Jesus' actions are the actions of God, then we all have to deal with something real. Well, those actions ultimately lead to the crucifixion and death, which means that God himself, right, 
and the flesh, the incarnation of the person of Jesus Christ, chose voluntarily to come to creation, which he made, which he breathed life into, and allow that, crucif- that, uh, that creation to crucify him. Voluntarily giving himself up as a sacrifice for the sin and death that creation had. And so the actions of Jesus become the actions of a God who was so desperately in love with creation that he remedied their sin and death with his own life, the life of his son. So we know that the words of Jesus are the words of God. And the actions of Jesus are the actions of God. It leads us to one conclusion that we can't get around. And that's if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And what's incredible is that Jesus says this really plainly to them. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Now think about that for a moment. These guys, right? They've been walking around for three years with God. That's John's entire gospel wrapped into a nutshell, that Jesus isn't just some crazy wandering rabbi that has a bunch of really good things to say and then the crazy ones we can do without. He's saying, this is God. His words are the words of God. His actions are the actions of God. And if you've seen him, you have seen God. And these are all things that Jesus himself claims right here in this text, which is an incredibly important thing for us to understand when it comes to our theology of Jesus. Because we all want to create some version of Jesus that we can live with. And that live with usually means I like from afar but costs me nothing. We've created a religion around it. Our version of Christianity is built around a Jesus we can see but we don't actually have to give up our lives for. Because we love parts of Jesus, but the part that calls me to come and die to myself, the part that comes and calls me to lay down everything and follow him, the part that says that if you love me, you will walk as I walked. 1 John 2, 6. That part of following Jesus, most of us don't know what to do with. So we create a version of it where we can attach ourselves to his morality, right, without having to deal with the claims that he makes. But the truth is you can't separate the two. If Jesus is moral and he claims to be God, he's a lunatic if he's not God. But Jesus does claim to be God, and I have based my entire life And so says Paul on the fact that I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's true. Not because I have some conceptual evidence for it, because Jesus has wrecked me. He's changed me. He's rescued me. And the truth is, is that I believe that Jesus is God. And I believe his words are true. And I believe he is who he says he is. And every single one of us has to deal with that question. Who do you believe that Jesus is? Is he is who he says he is? Or is he a version that you can live with? But Jesus says this, and we get to that fact. I and the Father are in fact one. But then he switches gears, right? And I mentioned that. He switches gears, and he turns things a little bit more on their head. Listen to what he says in verse 12 again. He says, I will tell you the truth, right? So he just got through telling him, I and the Father are one. There is no way around that. You got to follow me. You're going to have to believe that. And this is what he says. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may, be, may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. So we get the sense here when we couple this text with last week's, actually the last two weeks, there's a really large truth here. And he is trying to beat this into the heads of the disciples. And it's this truth. He is leaving. Jesus is leaving. He is telling them plainly, I am going to a place where you can't go, at least not yet, right? I am leaving. 
but he is also telling them that he is leaving them empowered. So he's saying, I am leaving you, but I am not leaving you alone. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that next week. We've got to understand that truth because Jesus' life was actually a life that was meant to lead to death. So and it wasn't a natural death that was going to come at the end when Jesus hit the ripe old age of 74 or whatever the common living age was at those days. Jesus' life was created so that he literally might die. His earthly life was about his earthly death. And he was leaving. And he had been leading the disciples up to this point, and now he's plainly telling them, I am leaving. Peter says, you can't leave, I'll die with you. And Jesus says, you can't and you won't. I've got to go to the Father and prepare a place for you. Everything that we believe about Jesus is contingent upon his death and his resurrection. Now, for the disciples, of course, this is really frightening. Why? Because they've given up everything to follow Jesus. And if he's just going to leave them and abandon them, they're in trouble. Because now their lives are all marked next. And they all knew it. In fact, in John 10, they all almost got killed. So Jesus is assuring them that he's leaving them in power. He's saying, listen, I'm leaving, but... Right? If you have faith in me, you will do what I have been doing. Next week, we're going to talk all about the Holy Spirit that Jesus, and when he returns to the Father, the Father and the Son send, right? That's going to show up on Pentecost, and they send to empower the believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're going to talk all about that next week. But that's the empowering that Jesus is saying. But what he's telling them, look, is when I leave, you still will be doing, if you have faith in me, the things that I do. Right? So, and at the end of that, he says, and whatever you ask in my name, I will give to you. Which, of course, is a really powerful statement, right? Because the truth is, if that's true, if whatever I ask in the name of Jesus, he will give me, I have, like, unlimited power. Like, Jesus, give me a million dollars. Wait, wait, no, i got to ask for it in your name. Jesus, in your name, give me a million dollars. So I'm still not here. It's coming later, I guess. Right, because I think if Jesus is saying that, then it means that we can get whatever we want, which is how most of us play with Jesus, which is we call upon him to make our lives easy, more comfortable. The truth is, if you read this text, Jesus isn't saying you get whatever you want. There's a couple of really important things about what Jesus says here. He says, I am leaving, right? It's happening, and I'm telling you the truth. If you have faith in me, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. There's a couple of, of kind of qualifiers, if you will, on that statement. I will give you whatever you want. You will do even greater things. Those, those things have qualifiers attached to them. The first, of course, is that you have to have faith in Jesus. So before God will basically do the things that we are asking him to do, we have to believe in Jesus. We have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God, that he has been crucified and raised, and we have given our lives. All this is based on the fact that we have faith in Jesus, that we believe he's able to do the things that he says he's able to do. So we have faith in me, he says. He says, you will, be do, you will do what I have been doing. Now, what has Jesus been doing? Which, of course, begs that amazing question. Because what he's telling the disciples is, you will continue to do what I have been doing. So the promise that Jesus makes to the disciples is that you will be empowered not to go and do whatever you want, but to do what I have been doing and even greater things. And what has Jesus been doing? He has been obediently doing whatever the Father commanded him to do. John 15, 5, really powerful verse. We went, we went through it a long, long time ago. John, or I'm sorry, John 5, 19. He says this. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the Son could do nothing by himself, 
but he can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because what the Father does, the Son also does. So what does Jesus do? Jesus obediently lives in response to the call of the Father. Jesus wasn't out kind of willy-nilly, making his own way, doing his own thing, trying to navigate his own picture of life, calling upon the Father to sort of help him get a job here or there, maybe find a spouse or get out of debt, right? He was following obediently the call of the Father that would lead him to the ultimate sacrifice, which was death to himself voluntarily on the cross. You know what Jesus tells the disciples? He says, I'm going... And if you have faith in me, you will do what I've been doing. Now, as amazing as that sounds, it should be somewhat petrifying. Because what was Jesus doing? He was wandering around the countryside proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God in the face of people that wanted him dead. And he was loving and touching and being with people that nobody else wanted to be around. Jesus was not creating a life for himself where he was a perfect Christian businessman or businesswoman. Jesus was not creating a life for himself where he built up shrines to his own ego. Jesus was not building a life for himself where he gave himself all the comforts he wanted and then gave out of his abundance. Jesus was not building up a life for himself where he got everything perfectly lined up and when he got into panic mode, he called out to the Father and said, I don't know if I can handle this. My kid's going off the reservation or whatever. I don't know what to do. Calls out to God, which is how every single one of us live. We build our own lives, and when things go crazy, we cry out to God. But what Jesus says is that if you have faith in him, you will do what he did, which should be petrifying to us, but also incredibly exciting. Because Jesus has handed the mantle of his life to his followers. You will continue to essentially be my hands and feet in the world. You will go the places I go. You will love the people I love, right? You will speak the things that I speak. And you know what's even going to be more incredible? Is you will do greater things than you've seen me do. This is incredibly powerful because we are called to do what Jesus did. Right? You have faith in me. You will do what I've been doing. What has Jesus been doing? What he's been doing? Obedient what the Father has been doing. And then finally he says in that verse right there, verse whatever that is, um, I guess it's right there at the end, verse 13 and 14. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So the Son may bring glory to the Father. So Jesus says, not only are you going to do what I've been doing, but you will do greater things, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do. Which is really important here, because who's doing the doing? Well, it's Jesus. So when great things happen as a follower of Christ, when you pray and God moves, right? Or when the miraculous happens, or if you're a part of some incredible miracle. Or when you see things great happening or that God is doing things or that you're a part of some kind of miraculous moment, it's not you doing the doing. It's always Jesus doing the doing. He says, I will do the things that you ask. In other words, you are not empowered as some supernatural being to do these incredible things. God is going to use you as his instrument, but it's always God who does the doing. Why? Because it's always God who gets the glory. Now, Paul was adamant about this. If you remember our study of the book of Acts, everywhere Paul went around his missionary journeys, God would do the miraculous, and they would try and take Paul and make him a god. They would say, you're incredible, Paul. You've got so many gifts. You are a god, and we want to worship you. And Paul would rip his clothes off, and he would put on sackcloth, and he would scream, and he would wail, and he would cry. He would say, it's not me. It's Jesus. So quit trying to give me credit. I literally am just standing here, and God is doing amazing things. As a follower of Christ, you are promised to do the things that Jesus did. And you are promised even greater things, which means in your life, you are going to see God do incredible things. You are going to witness miracles that can't be described or explained. 
You are going to see people come to know Christ that you never dreamed could come to know him. And what's really important in all this is that you have done none of the power. You are the instrument by which the God of the universe is using. Step off our high horse a little bit. Live in humility and remember who's doing the doing. If anything, Christian leaders all over our country have got to recognize this. The truth is, is that these are not great, wonderful men and women who are supernaturally powerful. They're just people that God is using for what? For his glory. And what happens is, so often, is that we take that glory, we wrap it as robes around ourselves, and you say, you all need me. And it's a lie. Because it's all just Jesus. You will do greater things than this. I will do what you ask in my name. Why? Look at that last piece. Because the Son will glorify the Father. Every breath and every moment and every heartbeat that Jesus had on this earth was for the glory of God the Father. As his followers, to do greater things than him, every heartbeat and every breath that we take should be about God's glory, not our own. It means that God receives the glory for my very existence. Without him, I don't know where I would be, but I promise you it would probably be dead somewhere in a gutter. Both metaphorically, spiritually, and honestly, probably truthfully. Left up to my own devices, I'm a disaster. Jesus is in fact God. And he's telling the disciples that I am leaving, but I am leaving you empowered and not empowered to go and live an incredible life where people think you are amazing and I will do all the things that you want and I'll make all of your wildest dreams come true. No, I'm leaving you empowered to do what I have been doing, which means as followers of Christ, as the church, Jesus is leaving us empowered to be his hands and feet in the world, to live the way that he lived, to live for God's glory and realize that it's Christ moving through us and that he receives all glory, honor, and power and praise because the Son glorifies the Father. If your life exists to create something for you, calling upon the name of God when things get hard, or if your life exists basically to be built around you, you are missing what it means to actually follow Jesus. Every turn a follower of Christ says, God, what you want, not what I want. Where are you leading and I will go. Sometimes that means I literally have to leave the country. Sometimes that means I have to walk across the room. But every breath in my life is built for God's glory and God's glory alone. That should be the heartbeat of every disciple. And we should rail against anything that pushes us in any other direction. Jesus is leaving, but he's leaving us empowered not to do the things that glorify us or bring us attention, but to do the things that glorify the Father. So I ask you this simple question as we kind of close out, and that, who is getting glory in your life? Truthfully, who's getting glory? Is it you? Is your life a picture of the glory of God at every moment, and at every turn, and at every breath, because that's Jesus' existence. And he is leaving us to do, if we have faith in him, to do what he did, to glorify the Father. Every breath, every heartbeat, every moment is built to glorify God. Now, we celebrate this table. We do it once a month here, but we really, this is the ultimate picture of God's proclaimed glory. Jesus' death and resurrection was for God's glory and God's glory alone. This very table that we celebrate is built on these truths that Jesus went voluntarily to the cross knowing full well what was to come. Because at the end, Jesus gets raised from the dead 
and the Father is glorified. Jesus' entire existence on earth was to bring glory to the Father. This night that we're talking about here in John chapter 14 is the very same night that Jesus actually broke this bread. We're going to be in that night for quite some time. But it's that very night, that very night that he sat with his disciples. He had removed his outer garments. He had scrubbed their feet. He had told them that this was the full extent of his love. He put his garments back on, and he sat with them reclining at the table, and he took a loaf of bread. And after he had given thanks, he took that bread, and he broke it, and he said, This is my body, broken for you. In the very same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant, poured out for you. That as long as we take of this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming his death, Christ's death, until he comes again. The disciples didn't grasp the full depth of what Jesus was saying or doing. But they would in a matter of moments, a matter of hours. The beauty of what we gather here today is that we are celebrating a God who is exactly who he said he was. Let's pray together. Excuse me. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here. We thank you that this table is not an ordinary table. We thank you, Lord, that it is full of wonder and grace and beauty. We thank you, Lord, that it is a picture of your obedience poured out for us. Take these ordinary elements and do something incredible with them. Nourish our souls and our hearts. Lord, we are deeply, deeply in love with you. Thank you for sending your son to give us life, that we might know you and experience your goodness and your grace. Every one of us in this room is steeped in sin. We've broken promises to you, to people. We failed, we've fallen short. And yet your grace through the cross is never-ending and extends to our shattered hearts, our moral failures, our broken lives and marriages, our desperation, our fear, our anxiety, our worry, and it speaks to our lack of trust in you. Your grace covers all of those things. And so, Lord, as we confess those things and we celebrate this meal and we worship you, we pray, God, that you would be the one that receives glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As our servers come forward, I invite you, as you feel led and called as our worship team leads, to come down, or in the back, there'll be two stations. Take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup, and then you can return to your seat. Um, But we'll celebrate this meal together and then continue in worship this morning. Let's worship the Lord.